SCI Care, what really matters? Welcome to this week's installment of SCI Care, what really matters? Today, we're talking about empowering people who have a spinal cord injury to get their dignity back. It's been a great mix of content and such a joy to be involved in the production and hosting of most of these sessions. Have you heard the conversation yet between Dr. Jen Coker, Professor Dan Graves and Stephen Muldoon on everything about ISCOS? I loved listening to why each of them joined ISCOS and what roles they hold within the society now as all three are very active members. I have another interview coming up with Dan to discuss the journals and the direction he has been and will continue to take as editor-in-chief. It's also had me reflecting in my time with ISCOS and why I became a member. I became the head of the South Australian Spinal Cord Injury Service in May 1986. It's a long time ago. I joined ISCOS, or IMSOP as it was called then, only a few months later, as it was clear to me that this would enable me to network with and to collaborate with people from all over the world who were looking after people living with spinal cord injury. We're now 60 years down the track. And the name of the society changed along the way to reflect the changes that had occurred. Because initially, IMSOP was a medical society. And the first conference I attended in 1988, was almost all male. There were a few women there who were allied health or nurses, and I was one of the few physicians who was a female. Having recognised the importance of nursing and allied health professionals and researchers who weren't doctors, the society changed its name to the International Spinal Cord Society from the International Medical Society of Paraplegia. And these days, anyone working in the field can be a full member of ISCOS. And we have an amazingly diverse multidisciplinary membership. So have a listen to Dan and Jen and Stephen talking about why they joined ISCOS. For me, it was easy. It was the only medical society for doctors working in spinal cord injury. And at the time, it was clear that I needed to join. And I did. And I hope that people who are listening to this podcast, who work in the field and haven't joined, 
look into it. It is one of the cheapest international societies to join and it comes with two journals that are available online. And I might say, as the president, I think one of the very best. Okay, so today this is a podcast with a difference and I'm handing over the reins to Rachel Chapel, who will be our host today exploring empowering SCI patients to get their dignity back with our guest today. Karina Anderson is a nurse and urotherapist who has 40 years of experience within SCI care. Welcome, Rachel. I'm so pleased to hand over. Hello, Ruth, and thank you very much. I'm delighted to join you. Great. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Firstly, as it is a fabulous follow-on from our recent uh, interview regarding bowel management, freedom and dignity, a patient story episode, when I met with Bev Collins and Sally-Ann Haig, whereby Sally-Ann gave her honest and at times quite distressing account of her experience as a patient with a new spinal cord injury and its devastation and how she got out of it to regain her freedom and dignity. In this episode today, we are going to be looking at the care we can provide to give patients back their dignity. We will publish this episode on September 20th, just in time for Urology Awareness Week in the UK. Rachel, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and the aims of this episode? Yes, of course. Thank you, Ruth. I'll start uh, with a bit about myself, if that's okay. I live in the uh, southwest of the UK, in Bristol, and I've now been working with WellSpec in various roles for over 25 years. Prior to this, I worked as a nurse, and currently I have a dual role as urology product manager with global responsibility for some of the low-fruit catheters. And I'm also a clinical education manager with responsibilities to deliver product and therapy education resources for our customers to use. So in this episode, um, empowering SCI patients to get their dignity back, we will be looking at the importance of keeping patients' integrity and dignity after uh, spinal injuries, empowering people to live their life they like to live by efficient bladder management after spinal Um, cord injury and touching on how bladder and bowel management has changed over 40 years. It certainly has changed a lot and I still remember the first patient I had who used a Lofric catheter. I might say that 30 something years down the track he is still using low-frit catheters. So they've been around for a while and they remain a very good option. I'm going to hand over to you completely, Rachel, and let you, you've told us a little bit about your work with WellSpect and 
we're honoured to have you representing WillSpec today. And welcome, Karina. Thank you. I know Rachel has some questions to ask you and about where you are based and go on from there. So over to you, Rachel. Thank you very much, Ruth. I'm honoured as well, I have to say, to uh, represent WellSpec um, during this podcast. And on behalf of WellSpec, we're delighted to have this opportunity to join with ISCOS, with this series of podcasts, SCI Care, What Really Matters. During this episode hosted by us, we will have a series of meetings where we will talk about bladder and bowel management uh, with SCI Care and how important, crucial part this is, especially when it comes to a person's dignity. At WellSpect, we have a real passion, and I have as well, having worked for the company for 25 years, about bladder and bowel management, with the ultimate aim of making life better for people with bladder and bowel dysfunction in some way. So hello, Karina. Hello, Rachel. Hello. It's lovely to have this opportunity to talk with you. And um, it would be really, really lovely if you could say a bit about where you live in Sweden. It sounds a very special place. I live in Umeå. It's in the northern part of Sweden. Uh, It's near the sea, the Baltic Sea. Uh, I live on an island in the Baltic Sea, but there is a bridge, so I don't have to go by boat. I have a family, I have a husband, I have two girls, two children, who has two girls, so I am a grandmother. Uh, And they have been with me all the time from when I started my work here for a long time ago. (laughs) Today it's uh, getting closer to autumn. Uh, The leaves are getting change of the colors in the trees. The sun is shining and it's beautiful outside. I like to go in the forest to pick mushrooms. That's one of my favorite things to do. And to take a swim in the Baltic Sea or in the river close to us, to our little cottage. Well, that sounds fantastic. Thank you. Can you say a little bit about the spinal unit that you work Mm. in? Because that sounds very special as well. When I started in 1986, (laughs) uh, we had 14 beds. Yes, and now we have only eight beds due to the things that change throughout time. Uh, we have now eight beds for spinal cord injury patients, both traumatic and non-traumatic. And uh, even some place, uh, some beds for traumatic brain injuries. We work in teams with the occupational therapist, physiotherapist, the doctor, the speech therapist, the counselor. And we have a very tight team together with the patient who is the head of the team, so to speak. We take them, we take the patients directly from the IC intensive care unit. We, or if they need that kind of care initially, we take patients from the orthopedic ward. Uh, it depends on the level of injury and how intensive care unit, intensive care they need after the, the accident. You only have eight beds um, and yeah. that's rather, sounds rather small, but does mm. this mean you have um, a really special connection, would you say, with your patients? Absolutely. We are not so many nurses. We are not so many, not so many 
assistant nurses. We are about 12 nurses and about 15 assistant nurses who works 24-7. We have uh, three physiotherapists and three occupational therapists and two counselors. So we are quite good. So you're well staffed. We are well staffed. So would you say that these patients that you um, have, do you ever discharge them? Or would you say you always keep in contact with them Mm -hmm. and you were there for them from the beginning to? Uh, It depends on the, we have different counties. uh, We have uh, Norrbotten, who will take home their patients after the first time, first in rehab time here for about after maybe four, six, eight weeks. Then we have two other counties, Jämtland and Västernorrland, who can leave their patients a bit longer with us. Uh, And our own county, Västerbotten, then we have the patients until they go home to their home. Um, is this quite a unique service in, in Sweden or is this quite similar service to what's provided in, in, in Sweden? It's quite the same all over Sweden, yes. So what's the population that you have? As about 900,000. 900,000, 900, yes. So eight beds is a, oh, we probably talk about, yeah, about 20 beds for 2 million. So that's probably quite reasonable, but your staffing levels seem fantastic. You have such a long experience with both acute and longer rehab care with your patients, with spinal injury patients. So looking back with your 40 years care, what do you think has changed since you started? In the beginning, we had a lot of four bedroom. The patients were four people in one room. Now they have single rooms and uh, every single room has their own toilet. Regarding the the bladder, we all did the tapping in the beginning. And the boys had this condom catheter and the women had diaper or incontinence protective protection or indwelling catheters. In the beginning, when they had this four bedroom, imagine the bowel management when you're not alone in the room and we help them and we they wheelchair to the toilet and it was integrity was not good. <laughs> did, would you see these patients who started and you said the tapping the bladder, do they still do that? I think we have managed to convert <laughs> most of them to use as single use catheters, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but some still do the tapping, yeah. Yeah. So can I just jump in there and say that what you described is very familiar to me as well. And in fact, one of my mentors thought it was horrifying that we were getting people to self-catheterize. My predecessor had been on a traveling fellowship and had seen people, I think had uh, visited the UK and um, Professor uh, Vindala and learnt about intermittent catheterization and introduced it quite early. But where I'd done my training, they were still using condom drainage in the early 1980s. And I can remember my female patients who were wet all the time. Mm. And the open wards, four beds 
When mm. I was a trainee, the smallest ward was six and the next ward was 15 beds. Mm. Um, you know, there was no privacy. No privacy. And when I came to the unit where I am now, the men's toilets and showers, well, it had been a military hospital. And so they had this long open area with with shower curtains in front of the showers and the toilets, but everybody was in there together. And there was one bathroom, one toilet and one shower for women. So you can imagine the year that we had 15 tetras and five of our high tetras were women and we had another 10 women in our ward, the problems we had with the bathroom situation because we couldn't send them down to the boys' bathroom because there was absolutely no privacy. So I can hear exactly what you're saying because I too started as a trainee in 1980 in uh, Spinal Cord, but I took over in in Adelaide in 1986. And thankfully, like you, Karina, I have seen a lot of changes and um, very few people would want to do tapping these days. So I'm more interested to hear what changes you've seen, but so far it sounds so similar. Yeah, now with the, with the single room, uh, it really goes a lot better and you can keep the privacy and uh, they can do things Ooh. a lot better themselves. I think uh, you get, uh, don't have the uh, kidney failures anymore because uh, tapping is not good for the kidneys in the long run. So uh, I can't imagine, I mean, I qualified as a nurse in 89 and then uh, even now I feel it's some of that practice is outdated. But what you're discussing there was what about bowel management? So is how has that changed? Has that made significant changes as much as bladder management, would you uh, say? Not that big change uh, because uh, we don't do any of the transanal irrigations we can do it if there is a lot of problem but even though I think a lot of these patients can manage their bowels uh, after getting the best routine after breakfast or after dinner uh, with the macrogol with the laxative we now give today uh, is making a better way to bowel mm -hmm. management so we've made a few steps forward to making things a bit more dignified now. But yeah. if the problems continue when we meet them in follow-ups, mm -hmm. then we discuss transanal irrigation. I'm just thinking back to the previous um, podcast that um, Ruth mentioned with uh, Sally Ann's experience, and there she didn't have such a great experience, and that wasn't so long ago. I think it was about six years ago. From your side, it sounds like your practice in your unit is is a good experience in some way for for someone who is a, a patient with you what would you say is acceptable to live with and you shouldn't tolerate and any advice you would give to patients the um, bladder shouldn't tolerate uh, incontinence mm -hmm. you can get help there in medication or botox in the bladder <laughs> or infections 
uh, if you do the uh, CIC in the, the right manner, so to speak, with not so overfilled bladder. And if you have this special schema schedule, mm -hmm. yeah. I think uh, you can manage without urinary tract infections. Yeah. When we've spoken before, you spoke about your patients. Um, when you talk about intermittent catheterization, a difference that it does make to their quality of life, but also you talk to patients about um, intermittent catheterization and their sex life, which obviously is a difficult subject to broach normally. And mm. can you say a little bit about, Karina, how you broach that? I think often the sex questions comes along uh, with a reflex erection that can occur while we are doing the CIC or washing and then talk about fertility and the importance of closeness and tenderness and to have a good communication with, with your partner. I think that's a good start. And there are and, any discussions about bladder and bowel emptying prior to sex? Oh, that, of that course, come? yeah. To empty your bladder before you get uh, in bed. Uh, and we often prescribe Viagra before they go home for their first leave home visit mm -hmm. over a weekend or so. So do we. So do we. Exactly the same. But interestingly, I find that sometimes the patients bring it up very early in the acute period. And they don't ask about sex. They ask about fertility. And you then talk about the fertility issues. Sometimes the mothers bring it up because they want to know whether they're going to be a grandmother or not. And that's really interesting because I, I think you would have found, I've certainly found, that our answers have changed over the years. And, and actually some of that is thanks to uh, Klaus Hütling in Stockholm and the work he has done to improve our ability to obtain semen to make babies and I but I do get that question from the mothers whilst their son who might only be 20 is in the intensive care unit the boys may ask that if they have a partner otherwise they ask it later down the track often of the nursing staff when they are learning to do catheters and then when they're going out on their first weekend overnight leave, yeah, we, they may ask us to give them some uh, sildenafil to give it a go. And I was, I'm very pleased to say that at my a very recent outpatient clinic, a patient and his wife and a two-month-old baby came to see me. And I had seen him a year ago and they had asked about the fertility program, but he's incomplete. And I said, well, before we send you off to a fertility program, why don't you just try? And, yeah, very quickly they tried and I saw the product of their experiment in my clinic. Very cute baby boy. And, and we need to remember that 
before couples make babies, they need to have that close and honest relationship, even more so when one of them has a disability, to talk through the issues. And Karina's so right about the closeness and the communication, which is important for all relationships, really. Mm-hmm. There's no, no difference in that experience. It's just lovely that most of our boys can now be biological fathers compared to when Karina and I would have started, which was, sorry, if you can't ejaculate, then I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to manage to be a dad. And um, I do have a Feticare uh, so vibrator here in my office so they can borrow it. <laughs> my charge nurse has one too. And there have been some babies out of that one? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but um, oh, what a lovely, lovely story. Um, Ruth, thank you for that, for sharing that about the, about the baby. And, uh, yes, it is lovely. Yeah. And um, whilst just talking about men, I'm really intrigued because I've experienced this uh, when I was a nurse and teaching intermittent catheterization. And I'm like, Karina, when you're actually teaching men intermittent catheterization, do you have any short stories to tell or, or how you broach or teach intermittent catheterization or for men when they first come in contact with a catheter? Do you have any, any ways that you actually particularly teach men so that it's a bit more acceptable for them? The first we, we do, the, they have the indwelling catheter when they come here and we take it away quite quickly. And then we help them with, with CIC. So they, uh, we talk about now we will t- remove your catheter and we will empty your bladder about every fourth hour with this catheter. And then I will show them and they think, oh, it's so long. It's so big. <laughs> Uh, but I always say, if you feel it's very slippery, so it will just easily glide through your urethra. And this size, use Sherrier 14. Mm-hmm. If you pee yourself and if you put some pressure on it, you know, urethra can open up to maybe Sherrier 25 or 26. So it, Sherrier 14 is not so big. Um, so and then it's more over they can overcome the fear (laughs) and use it and do you see more fear in men than in women generally yeah absolutely yes men for men their their penis is such a precious part of their anatomy and having a catheter in there an indwelling catheter in there is it's something that most of them hate And taking the catheter out and teaching them about intermittent catheterization is a big ask. But I agree with Karina uh, and also with you, Rachel, that, in fact, once they get over that initial, oh, my God, I'm going to put that in me, um, um, no, no, no. (laughs) Once they get over that, they actually don't have a problem um, provided they don't injure themselves um, by scratching the inside of their urethra, it's actually easier for them, I think, than for women because their anatomy, they've got something to hold on to. 
for women, it's much harder. And I'm interested, Karina, how you how you teach your women to self-catheterize. Do they use mirrors? What do you do? The first time we use mirror, but then we try to put take it away because mm-hmm. they shouldn't be used to having a mirror. They get so stuck with the mirror. But I use I say you must have your hand, your fingers to feel where your urethra is. And so you can touch with your hand and then put the catheter between your fingers. In that way, it's easier to reach the urethra opening. What about their balance? Is that a problem trying to, particularly for the higher paras, to bend over to to reach their urethra? Is that, do you find that to be an issue? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but they often have these uh, handles beside the toilet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they have their wheelchair in front of them so they are, can't fall anywhere uh, and put one yeah. leg up on the wheelchair. Mm. Yeah, that's one way. I have some women who catheterize with a male catheter rather than a female catheter okay. and sit in their wheelchair and catheterize and use them the longer catheter like a hose. Oh, yeah. Um, whilst others much prefer to transfer onto the toilet and use a short female catheter. And I think it also depends on their clothing. Yeah. What about your tetras? What do you do with them? We do the CIC here. Yeah. And before they go home, if they uh, prove to get the assistance, personal assistance. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh, then they can choose if they want them to do that, do the CIC, or if they want the super pubic catheter. Yeah, yeah. Mm, they get the options. Of course, once they get the super pubic catheter, they will get stuck to it. <laughs> well, yes, but I have had some people who have men as well as women have had a super pubic put in because at the time. It was too hard. They had all these other deal things to deal with. Some of them have gone off to have nerve transfers to enable them to get better hand function and then have come back and got rid of the suprapubic catheter and, and started doing self-catheters. So I, I, I think that's always a possibility. And I do say to people, if they have a suprapubic and they're going to have enough hand function down the track, but maybe they're not transferring enough and, or they just can't deal with it at the moment. We say, well, you can change. It's very easy to do bladder training when somebody has a suprapubic catheter. Um, and these days, I don't know about in Sweden, but certainly here, well, in my unit, our urologist routinely when she puts in a suprapubic, also gives some Botox to maintain bladder capacity, which seems to work quite well, and they have less issues with catheter blockages and leakage as well. Yeah. I have one patient, though, I'd like to tell the story about because she's a, a lovely woman. I've looked after her since she was 18. Along the way, she's had twin boys who have now left school, so... I've looked after for a long time. She likes wearing very tight jeans and you go, oh, my goodness. But she has ones that don't have seams that give her pressure injuries. 
and she has some, she's paraplegic and she has the scene at the bottom at her crutch actually open, a bit like a Mitrofanov catheterizable stoma. She has the hem opened, but you can't see that it's open. And she catheterizes through the hole in her jeans. Wow. And she doesn't wear any underwear and she doesn't have any urine infections. That's great. That's really great. Yes, it sounds very much a journey and an individual yeah. journey. And we do we do some some of the Mitrofanov surgery as well, especially yeah. in younger people, girls who are a lot of years in front of them. And it enables them, particularly some of the low tetras who would have difficulty self-catheterizing because of balance, to be able to self-catheterize. And it makes such a difference to them in terms of their um, quality of life. Most of them don't like, that I've got, don't like um, using lubricated catheters when they're doing uh, catheterizing via Metrofenov. Do you have them using lubricate, pre-lubricated or uh, yeah. catheters or dry catheters? And the ones who who was done recently, they use lubricated catheters. Yeah. But the ones who was made in the 90s, they have the plastic catheters. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's what they're used to doing. Yes, it's the same. Is there anything else that um, you would say helps with staying with catheters, to adhering to catheters? Any factors you felt like sharing? talk very much about supporting and finding an individual approach a bit like the lady you said with the genes is, is there anything else we should consider when we're teaching people to learn intermittent catheterization it's, it's a tall order i think it's important to find a catheter that is yeah. easy, easy to handle that it's easy to use and uh, that it's safe and that it doesn't cause any any injury in the urethra uh, and uh, we do have this frequent follow-up to ensure that the kidney is okay and, or if they need Botox or something due to yes. uh, overactive bladder. Exactly. Exactly the same with urodynamics and ensuring if there are any problems that you, um, that they know they can come back to you very easily. They have our telephone numbers. We have spinal nurses in the community to follow people up as well as at my spinal unit. We look after patients from one end of the country to the other, the middle third of Australia. So there's about 4,000 kilometres between my unit and the major hospital in the north. So I have... How, how often do you see them? We do clinics up there sick times a year and I go into Aboriginal communities but I couldn't do it last year because of lockdown and I couldn't do it this year so I did it by various telehealth systems yeah. some of which worked better than others but we've become very used to using telehealth and I've got community spinal nurses who can be there with the patients so if we can't be there and we're doing it by Zoom, they're in there with a trained spinal nurse who's 
a continence nurse advisor and a wound advisor who can really provide the, the support at their end. But I love going up and leaving my office and seeing my patients who live so far away and I'm very privileged because I get to go into Aboriginal communities and uh, have a house full of Aboriginal art. I consider myself very privileged about in that case, but, but it is important, I think, to, for everyone who's had a spinal cord injury with significant neurogenic bladder and bowel needs long-term follow-up. And I think that's one of the other lessons that we really try to teach our patients. And I think that's everywhere in the world that they can't just go off and do it by themselves. They need to feel able to come back to us any time that they feel the need. And, of course, we're moving into the post-antibiotic age and antibiotics in Sir Ludwig Goodman's time, starting the whole field of spinal cord injury management was what left Europe and the United Kingdom with so many people with pressure injuries and with spinal cord injuries. They were surviving because of the advent of penicillin and because of the advent of the sulfonamides. I can't remember the last time I treated a patient with a UTI with just a sulfonamide. I think I would be considered to be negligent. But we are so careful now about treating uh, urine that has bacteria in it. And we everywhere only treat people who are actually symptomatic with a UTI rather than, yeah, rather than giving them antibiotics. And I really try to impress and my team impresses and I'm sure you do too, Karina, and your whole team does, that getting bugs in the urine if you're self-catheterizing, although we would prefer your urine to be clear, completely clear of bugs, we know that that doesn't happen for everyone. But we will only treat it once they're over the acute period. They'll only treat it if they're running a temperature, if they've got hematuria, if they're unwell. Just having smelly urine means that they probably need to drink more and maybe do a couple more catheters during the day to improve the situation. And I get quite cross with patients who tell me, oh, my GP just gives me, my family doctor just gives me a prescription so that if I think I've got a urine infection, I just treat it. And I say, well, that's how we've got, you've got so many antibiotic resistant bugs in your system and now we can't treat you with anything and I think that this is one of the lessons we've been teaching people and clean self-intermittent catheterization has been one of the ways that we have been able to reduce the number of symptomatic urine tract infections by enabling people teaching them to use a new catheter every time they catheterize and keep their urine 
clean and if they can't catheterize on sensation a lot of patients get some sort of sensation always laugh when they tell me they catheterize on sensation I ask them what the sensation is and they say I get a bit of a headache and sweaty which means that the sensation is a dysreflexic one rather than actual proper sensation but I don't care if it gives them enough warning to catheterize but if they can't catheterize on sensation of some sort then they need to catheterize by the clock and by how much fluid they've taken in and my Rule when they go out drinking, grow out drinking beer, which I know is very popular in Scandinavia and it's also very popular in Australia. Yeah, it, then it's a beer and an equal amount of water and a catheter repeat so that they actually recognise the importance of measuring internally how much fluid they're taking in recognizing that if they have alcohol it changes how their body puts urine out and that they're not to go out without spare catheters yeah and i think that and because we don't want to give people antibiotics it's become more and more important that we teach them that we don't want them to go on antibiotics unless they actually need them that's very important. I also teach the patient how to look for signs for infection. Yes, fever, increased spasm, yeah. all those sorts of things. And increased dysreflexia if they're of course, in the of course. Um, Not just a smell of urine, no. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I, but I still get people coming in saying, I know I've got an infection, my urine spells, and I look at it. If they've got a catheter in, I look at it and I go, Urine is supposed to be the colour of a light white wine. It is not supposed to be the colour of beer. Your urine is the colour of beer. You're not drinking enough. You can't do that when they're self-catheterising, but when they have a suprapubic catheter, you can do that. So it's, it's really important, actually, that we get that message out and that it, one of the lovely things is that catheters aren't cheap, but they have come down in price. And the suppliers have recognised that, and WellSpect, I don't know about in anywhere else, but WellSpect in Australia has been at the forefront of providing catheters to users at a cheaper price than they can buy them from a, a general salesperson. They get them at what we call wholesale plus tax or whatever but it's but it's significantly less and I think some of the other suppliers also have followed suit to enable people to do it and the insurers have come on board so that we're not teaching people to reuse their catheters which we certainly did in the 1980s because they were unaffordable and catheters in the 1980s, the plain plastic ones were a dollar in Australia a piece, and people didn't get any money to pay for them. So, of course, they reused them. Now the insurance systems actually funds it, and we just say they need a new catheter every time they catheterise. And WellSpec has been at the forefront in Australia 
of enabling my patients to buy catheters at an affordable price. I'm delighted to hear that, Ruth. It's, um, I think bladder health is a really, really important thing and something as the company have tried to do to be you know, passionate and ensure it's available to as many people as possible. Yeah. I'm just going to move on a little bit. We can't have a discussion now without uh, talking about the pandemic. And I'm just really interested to understand a little bit because I, I imagine you've had to make changes and it'd be interesting to see what sort of changes you've had to make with your delivery of care or has it had an impact on patients in your in your care? Yeah, I think we've seen uh, less injured people during the mm. pandemic and the ones who we still have. They, I think it has been a big loss when they can't have their relatives here. Yes, when they exactly. can't have their family, friends, children, mother. I think that's very sad and it's complicated rehabilitation. Would you say in any way delayed the rehab? Um, I can only imagine it must be really hard yeah. to deal with a, with an injury and then not having your loved ones around. Exactly. Yeah. And having the, the loved ones around, hearing our discussions around the patient, uh, hearing, seeing every transfer, seeing every step that goes better and better. They only Skype with them when they are lying in the bed and uh, it doesn't uh, show the whole picture. Yes, and it's the same here. And we're now allowed to have two visitors per patient per day, but not at the same time. And everybody has to wear masks. And I tend to pull my mask down the first time I meet a patient so that they can see my face. And then I put the mask back on before I get into trouble because it's so hard to just see somebody's eyes and their glasses. They don't... really interferes with our ability, I think, to develop relationships with our patients, even more so, I think, for the nursing staff who have to put on PPE so much and are doing really delicate personal care, particularly when people are first injured, and not to be able to see people's faces properly and for their sound to be muffled because they're wearing a mask or maybe wearing a mask and goggles and plastic over, I think has been one of the worst things of the pandemic. And so we will have family meetings and we will be allowed to have one family member there but not two. And so we use FaceTime or telehealth, whichever system we can use, mostly just a phone, and, of course, they can't see anything on the phone. They can only hear. So the technology has really helped us in the pandemic, but we need more, we need better technology that enables people to be in the same place as the person who's stuck in hospital, even if they can't be there physically. Not every person can afford to have an iPhone at both ends or an iPad that enables them to see their loved ones. And if it's hard enough for 
those of us who are at home but can't see our families in another city or in another suburb when there's a lockdown or maybe can only go walking outside for an hour, how much worse is that for somebody who is dependent on care, who needs somebody to come in and help them transfer, help them do catheters. And this, and when they're first in hospital, it's frightening enough. And then we have to put up all these additional barriers. And that has hospital. really been a big change from earlier when we could have uh, cardigans or, or personal clothes on us, but now it's really hygienic and you all have to change this staff. one every yep. day. You have to... Yep. Yep. All of the staff wear, um, wear uh, scrubs when they're on the wards. Um, and some of my junior staff and some of my colleagues do. If I'm doing procedures, I wear scrubs. When I go to wound clinic, I wear scrubs. Um, gosh, if I, I have to climb on a bed to, uh, to debride a wound, I certainly don't want to be wearing a tight skirt and a silk blouse. Um, so, yes, so I think we've changed a lot and I think, we've become much, much more aware of the need for hygiene and cleanliness with cleaning our hands before we go into a patient's room, after we leave a patient's room. At the moment, I'm in a unit that still has shared bathrooms and toilets, but early in 2022, we're moving into a new facility and every patient will have an ensuite accessible bathroom and toilet. So that like your unit with eight beds, my unit will have 24 beds and each room will have its own bathroom. And that in itself will improve our ability to provide as hygienic a hospital space as we can. Yes, we've COVID has taught us a lot. Mm. And one of the things it's taught us is that we were taking all sorts of shortcuts with cleanliness and hand hygiene. And now even little kids go and clean their hands and yes. men wash their hands when they go to the toilet. There's some positives from, from this <laughs> pandemic. We're just coming towards an end, the end now of this discussion. And I just want to say a um, sort of reflection on, well, both of you have so much experience, but Karine, uh, uh, you have such a wealth of experience um, and you've provided some great insights um, of meeting individual needs of uh, your patients and how you have approached holistic care. Um, I mean, what does it mean to you? You have all this knowledge and experience now, and is there anything you feel you could share or pass on with us? Yeah, I would like to say that in principle, nothing is impossible. But if you can change your curtains or change the light bulb under the ceiling, you don't have to do it yourself every time. You need to take care of your body, especially your shoulders, so they can last for a long time. You need to listen to your body, your new body, 
and try to learn the new signs if something is wrong and get a habit of releasing pressure. Lift yourself, if possible, in your chair as often as you can or lean forward against the table, for example. Please take good care of your buttock. <laughs> Thank you. Give really nice advice there and thoughts. I couldn't add anything to that. That is because that is what we teach. We teach people that it's still their body and they have to learn to look after it. it it's not the same as it was, but they're still the owners. Mm. And I, I just want to thank you, Ruth, as well, for adding some really um, fantastic inputs and sharing some really lovely stories. It's been really great. And um, both of you for sharing your valuable insights. It's, it sounds such a special unit, both of yours. And, uh, and I think there's some real take-home messages for all of us to follow. And in, in particular, your individual approach to care. So thank you. Thank you. Rachel, for inviting me to be part of this. And Karina, it was just lovely to hear what changes you've seen in about the same time frame as I have seen such big changes in how we work with people who have sustained some sort of spinal cord injury at the time of the injury and then throughout the rest of their lives. I look forward when we're allowed to travel again to come up and visit your little unit. It sounds lovely. You're so, so welcome. And we have so much to learn from each other, which is why ISCOS is so important as a transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary organisation. And with that... I think we've had another fantastic episode of SCI Care, What Really Matters. We all hope you have enjoyed listening and I wish to ask you all a favour. Make sure you are sharing this podcast and our other podcasts with your colleagues. As always... We at ISCOS would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email them to admin at iscos.org.uk. I really hope that we will see you at our 60th birthday and anniversary scientific annual meeting at the end of September 2021. All the details are in our show notes. You'll also find us on social media and do follow us and join in the conversation. Until next time, stay safe, stay happy and stay healthy and look after your loved ones as well as your patients. Bye for now.